Thanks, Dave. We come together to remember the death of Jesus. Isn't it unusual that someone would want us to remember that? Their death. Have you ever wondered why the funeral focus? This time last year, my dad passed away, and I don't know whether to call it privilege, but I, but I, I watched him pass over a screen being up here. And I hated it. It was awful. Why would Jesus want us to remember his death? I hated seeing my father suffer. Why would I want to keep replaying that in my mind? Jesus, why not pick a brighter moment? Why not a lighter moment? There's plenty in your highlight reel. I can think of some better moments to remember than Good Friday. Well, I remember that day. What about the day, Jesus, you did your first miracle, that turning the water into wine? I mean, what about every time you go to take a drink, you go to the tap at the kitchen and fill up your water bottle? What about recalling that and remembering that Jesus can take that which is ordinary and turn it into something extraordinary? Why not remember that? We're not commanded to remember that. I can think of other moments in Jesus' highlight reel. What about the day he fed 5,000 with five loaves and two fish? Why not remember that? I mean, that was a pretty cool moment. It reminds us that Jesus can take what is small and blessed and multiply it and turn it into something huge and significant. It reminds us that even in our lives as we come to Jesus and we offer it up, it seems like, uh, is it going to make any difference? And he says, yes, absolutely, a life in my hands can make a world of difference. Why don't remember that rather than the darkest of memories? Why not some highlights, Jesus? Why the low light? The death of Jesus apparently is meant to take up a key part of our memory space. We're meant to regularly participate in this thing called communion. You've got it in your hands ready for the end of the service. If you're watching online, please uh, get ready to remember him in communion at the end of our time together. But I'm left wondering, Jesus, why remember that, the day of your death, the execution? Why focus on something so dark and negative and violent? I mean, the brutality of Jesus' end of life was next level. Why would he want us to remember that? Why would he want us to bring his death to mind? And moreover, what's good about the whole thing? Why call it Good Friday? Isn't it a bad one? Let's jump into our reading in the Gospel of Matthew and try and unpack these ideas as best we can. If you've got an electronic device, you'll find the notes in the YouVersion app as per usual. But a word of caution about our reading today. It's good that the kids are out of the room, that kids' ministry is running, because this is for mature audience only. There's, there's graphic, violent content here. Uh, it's an M-rated reading. Matthew 27 says this from verse 27. Pilate ordered Jesus flogged with a lead-tipped whip, then turned him over to the Roman soldiers to be crucified. Some of the governor's soldiers took Jesus into their headquarters and called out the entire regiment. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. They wove thorn branches into a crown and put it on his head, and they placed a reed stick in his right hand as a scepter. 
They knelt before him in mockery and taunted, Hail, King of the Jews. They spat on him and grabbed the stick and struck him on the head with it. They're not done, they're just taking a breather, temporary run out of saliva. Verse 31, they were finally tired of mocking him. They took off the robe and put his own clothes on him again and they led him away to be crucified. Along the way, they came across a man named Simeon who was from Cyrene. The soldiers forced him to carry Jesus cross. They went out to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. Who thought of that name, eh? Verse 34, the soldiers gave Jesus wine mixed with bitter gall and when he tasted it, he refused to drink it. When they had nailed him to the cross, after they had nailed him to the cross, the soldiers gambled for his clothes by throwing dice. They sat around and kept guard as he hung there. A sign was fastened above Jesus' head, announcing the charge against him. It read, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Two revolutionaries were crucified with him, one on his right, one on his left. The people passing by shouted abuse shaking their heads in mockery. Look at you now. They yelled at him. You said you were going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Well then, if you are the Son of God, save yourself and come down from the cross. The leading priest that teaches the religious law and elders also mocked Jesus. He saved others, they scoffed, but he can't save himself. So he is the King of Israel, is he? Let him come down from the cross right now and we'll believe in him. He trusted God, so let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. Even the revolutionaries who were crucified with him ridiculed him in the same way. Verse 45, at noon, darkness fell across the whole land until three o'clock. At about three o'clock, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Some of the bystanders misunderstood and thought he was calling for the prophet Elijah. One of them ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and holding up to him with a reed stick so he could drink, but the rest said, wait, let's see whether Elijah comes to save him. Then Jesus shouted out again, he released his spirit. At that moment, the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. This is the word of the Lord and may he add his blessing to it today. After reading all of that, my head just grows more foggy. Why call any of that good? Who in their right mind could call it good? It must be a typo. It must be meant to be called Bad Friday, yeah? Well, let's just think for a moment about what we read and determine how bad things were before we try and see the good. The physical torment of the crucifixion. Spend a moment thinking upon this. No one is qualified like a Roman soldier to inflict torment this was their bread and butter. They were renowned for it. Their capacity to inflict physical injury on people was second to none. If you've seen the movie called The Passion of the Christ, 
2004 Mel Gibson movie, you have a graphic picture of it, and if you don't have a stomach for gore, don't go there. Uh, somewhere midstream in the crucifixion scene of that movie, I had to check out, like I couldn't handle it. The depictions of the whippings with the cat and nine tails designed to tear skin away with every strike is just, just horrendous, horrendous. Even knowing it was a movie it was still hard to stomach and watch. This was the point of a Roman crucifixion, to spark dread in everybody that looked on and saw what was going on. It was to deter uh, people from committing crime because this could be you if you do something wrong in our territory. The whole point was to be brutal, to make sure it, it warded off anybody else from thinking about doing something wrong. The worse, the better. It was just the way the Romans liked it. Of the physical sufferings of Christ, the prophet Isaiah, by the power of the Holy Spirit, saw into the future 600 years before Jesus arrived. And this is a quote from way back 600 years prior. It says, No one scarcely knew he was a man. Such was the deformed appearance of our Lord. His human appearance was unrecognisable. And it leads me to think the movie was probably fair in the way it depicted those scenes. The physical suffering Jesus faced was off the charts. The first verse we read here gave us a little picture. It means, mentions the beatings in, in Matthew 27 here, followed by the crown of thorns that were jammed onto his forehead that verse 29 mentions, the bashing around the head with the stick that's reported in verse 30. And even the bitter drink given to him in verse 34, another means of distress. You're thirsty, are you? Try this. As they give him a vinegar-like substance, knowing it would be disdainful. In terms of the physical pain Jesus had to endure, of course, probably the peak of this is his, the nails going into his hands and his feet. But don't forget after he's hanging there how he has to draw a breath by pushing against these wounds. And some scholars would say that's how people eventually died through asphyxiation as they couldn't handle the pain anymore of pushing against the wounds to draw the next breath so they would eventually suffocate. This crucifixion was designed to cause suffering at every physical level conceivable. Was the idea was to make a person as vulnerable as possible. But it goes beyond physical. See, some of the depictions we see nowadays of the crucifixion kind of has a covering over the mid-area. So the person being crucified is, has the dignity of being covered up, but we know that usually they were stripped naked. So the torment here then goes beyond physical. There was also an emotional torment that Jesus faced. Now we could argue all day about which is greater, the physical torment, the emotional torment. I just say both were huge. Jesus was not only beaten brutally with physical injuries, he was humiliated emotionally. In our text here we see evidence of emotional suffering. I think it's epitomised in Jesus being dressed and undressed and dressed and undressed. Yeah. 
You say, John, oh, isn't that just physical? No, not when somebody else is doing it to you by force. This isn't just a physical act. When you're being undressed in front of a jeering crowd, it's gone beyond physical. Are we saying Jesus was sexually abused? Well, to some degree, yes. It begins to move in those spheres. I don't want to minimise anybody's suffering here today or impose something on the scripture that's not there. But to my way of thinking, being repeatedly undressed in front of a jeering crowd that's mocking you counts. Amidst being spat on and ridiculed and whacked, it qualifies in my mind. And to imagine that derogatory comments of a sexual nature are being made as they bow before him at that level, oh, it doesn't take my imagination much to think that that could have happened. Not everything is recorded that happened. Some students of Roman crucifixions would even say it was common to be speared through the genital area as part of the process. I don't know if that happened to Jesus or not, but we can't underestimate the emotional turmoil that he endured. He knows what it's like to be made vulnerable. And even before he'd physically made it up on the cross, he's spat on, he's mocked, he's stripped naked on multiple occasions. And then when he gets upright on that old rugged cross, it's not as though it's all over. The insults are just getting warmed up. The insults now take on a written form. They place a sign above his head. Hail King Jesus. Verse 37 we read about it. Don't be fooled. This is 0% honour and 100% contempt. It was an effort to spark further hate in his direction and it succeeds. Verse 39 talks about all the passerbys that enter into the game and spit their hate his way as well. If you're so powerful, what are you doing up there? If you're truly someone special, come down now, loser. Where's your miracles now? Everybody has a go at sinking the boots in. Verse 41 reports that leading priests, teachers, elders all throw their hate his way. Jesus carried scorn like you wouldn't believe on the cross. He was tormented physically, emotionally, and then spiritually. I don't even know how to quantify the spiritual suffering of Jesus. Like we don't have language. We are so underqualified to try and interpret what was going on in the spiritual realm between Father, Son and Holy Spirit. For all of eternity past, they've been like that. For all of eternity past, they've only known intimacy. They've only known being together. We get a glimpse into the spiritual torment Jesus is facing in verse 46 and 50 where he, he cries out in a loud voice. His heart is literally ripped out of his chest. He's a broken man. And there's deep cries that spring up from his soul. Imagine the sound. Can you hear it? I'm not sure we'd want to hear it. His soul wails 
we don't have a clip or a soundtrack, but as I say, would we really get any joy out of hearing it? The shriek would be horrendous. It's the cry of a wounded spirit. It's mentioned twice. He loudly cries out. I think it's significant it's mentioned twice and the fact that it's loud. Jesus isn't whispering. Politeness is long gone. He bellows out, my God, my God, why have you left me for dead? Why have you forsaken me? Why have you abandoned me? Why? Why on my darkest day am I alone in my spiritual torment? We tend to drill down these moments at the cross and they're climatic and we should reflect on them in terms of the spiritual torment Jesus faced. But I wonder if it began a long way before now. I'm not just talking about the previous days like in the Garden of Eden when he sweat like great drops of blood as he thought about what lay ahead and he cried out then, Father, take this suffering away from me. If there's any other way that we can achieve this salvation mission than this, like, let's explore it now. But I don't even mean that. I mean way, 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 way before that. Spiritual suffering. What do you mean, John? I mean when the conversation first broke out in the courts of heaven between the Trinity and they looked at each other and they said, what are we going to do with these humans that we love so much? How are we going to restore? How are we going to connect with them again? How are we going to show them we love them? How can we demonstrate something to them that will make a difference? I don't know how that conversation went down, but somehow attention gets turned to Jesus. I'm not sure if he put up his hand or if you know he got voted in. But imagine the moment where that realisation dawns. You want me to go down there into that brokenness, into that dark place and leave you? Leave all I've ever known? That spiritual torment. The suffering commenced well before it began playing out in an earthly realm. So we circle back to our question. Who in their right mind calls any of this good? I can think of lots of names for that first Easter Friday, but good doesn't come to mind. Why put a positive spin on such a tragic turn of events? Well, friends, Good Friday can only be called good for one reason, because of the outcome, because of the results, because of the accomplishment of what happened on that darkest of days. It's God's reminder to us that when you're feeling so low, so low that you think if you reached up, you might be touching the gutter. When you're that low, if you just put your life in my hands, you don't need to fear, child. I can turn things around. Good Friday preaches that to us. It tells us on, our, on the worst day of our lives, there is a connection between the best day of our lives if we hand it over to God. He can bring beauty from ashes. He can bring light from darkness. And the darkness can't comprehend the light of Christ. This is the message of Good Friday. That no enemy, including death, has anything on the power of God. Anyone who places their life in his hands 
is in on that. That's the Easter message. Matthew 27, 50 says, Jesus shouted out again and released his spirit. And here's the result. Here's what we can call it good. Because of what happened, what was transpiring in the spiritual realm. At that moment, the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Matthew doesn't give us the details that John does. John tells us what he shouted out. He shouted out, it is finished. That's what he shouted out. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Those three words from John, and those four words here in Matthew, they're the gospel in a nutshell. This is all we need. The cross was the finished work of God. And what happened when it was finished? Well, what happened is found in Matthew 27, 51, from top to bottom. Four words, from top to bottom. The curtain blows apart. The curtain that separated humanity and God is shredded because of what happened at the cross. Access is given into a holy God because of Jesus. This is why it's good. It's amazing. It's a good Friday, all right. It's God's invitation to come on in. It's good because of the outcome. It's a perfect God saying anyone who puts their trust in this finished work of Jesus can come right in to my presence. And we can be friends again. For centuries, nobody could. That's the whole point of the Old Testament. God is not a God to be messed with. He's a God of order. He's a God of holiness. I'm going to say it bluntly. God is hard to please. In fact, impossible to please. No one could do it. And that's why we needed Jesus. Us mere humans... We're never going to be able to work our way up. And that's why this curtain and such a powerful picture needed to be split from top to bottom. What's that tell us? That all of my attempts to try and tear at this separation between me and God were, were, were just futile. I was never going to be able to penetrate that wall. It was too hard. All of my good works were filthy in his sight. But he tore it from top to bottom and he says, come on in everybody, this is a good Friday. Let's be reconciled, let's be friends, we can be at peace again. That's the best news ever and that's why we call it the gospel. It's the good news of Jesus. Friends, stop, stop trying to strive, stop trying to think one day one day, not yet, one day I might be good enough to approach God. No, you won't. No, you won't. The only way to the Father is by him. The only way to the Father is by him. But no, today there's an open door. The curtain has been shredded from top to bottom. Never will it be sealed again unless you yourself step in and draw it closed. God's thrown it open and said, come in. Come in, let's be friends because of what happened on Good Friday. I'm going to invite you to stand as we move into communion. We're going to pray together.